Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working Radio Show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This particular sermon is entitled Murder and the Kingdom. Having made it clear that he does not oppose the law, but rather those who do oppose the law, Jesus now begins to reintroduce his disciples to what God was really saying in the law in the first place. And the first topic he takes up is murder. This seems like a strange place to start, for we would not imagine that homicide was a major issue in Israel, and certainly not among Jesus' disciples. But as Jesus will shortly make clear, murder, biblically, includes a lot more than physical homicide. It includes everything we do which takes away from the life of our neighbor, things like hating our neighbor in our heart, seeking vengeance, bearing a grudge, tail-bearing, refusing to seek reconciliation. When seen in that light, Murder really was a big problem in first century Israel, and it would continue to be a big challenge to the early church, as both James and the Apostle John point out in their epistles. And if we are honest, I think we have to say that murder, in the full sense of the word, continues to be a big problem in the church today. The long and short of it is that Jesus' words about murder are just as relevant, indeed just as needed, in the evangelical church today as they were in the fledgling church 2,000 years ago. So let's consider what our Lord says to the churches. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. This morning we will be continuing our consideration of the Sermon on the Mount, and we come to verses 21 through 26 of chapter 5 of Matthew. Matthew 5:21 through 26. This is the Word of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Let us pray. God and Father, we thank you for the word, and we pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would bring it to us anew today by power, that you would convict us of our sins, and that you would encourage us and strengthen us, that we would reflect Uh, the nature and character of Christ, and live to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, having established in the Sermon on the Mount thus far how the kingdom relates to the law as, as a whole and to the scribes and Pharisees as a whole who were perverting the law, Jesus now begins to focus in on how the kingdom relates to certain crucial commandments. And he begins with the sixth commandment, you shall not 
murder. Now, this should make us uh, uh, pause and question right from the beginning. Because one of the, one of the prime um, maxims of speaking in public is to know your audience. And so Jesus here is speaking to a bunch of Israelites. He's speaking to a bunch of members of God's family. He's speaking to the people of God. And this is where He goes. Murder. It's the first place where He goes. And it's almost like Jesus. Dude, know your audience. You're not talking to pagans. You're not talking to the Romans here. You're talking to God's people. You're going to lose them. You need to talk about something that's relevant to them. Something that's part of their experience. Homicide is not exactly a big, huge problem in Israel. Sure, I'm sure there's a few homicides here and there. But, you know, the mafia is not a big problem in Israel. Gangs aren't a big problem in Israel. Homicide is not a burning issue. So talk about Something relevant. Well, the point is, is that Jesus was talking about something relevant. He was talking about something that was a big problem with God's people. Now, homicide, physical murder, may not have been a big problem in Israel. But as we will see from Jesus's word, murder was a big problem. And it was still a big problem in the early church, as James points out in his epistle. He speaks to the early Christians about murder. It's still a big problem in the church today, which is why Jesus' words are just as relevant to us today as they were to his first disciples 2,000 years ago. So he says in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Now, this, of course, is what the law provided. The Sixth Commandment forbids murder. And the law elsewhere prescribes the death penalty for murder. And it sets up a procedure for trials in order to determine, to determine guilt. But Jesus here is not just quoting the Sixth Commandment and the process of adjudication. He's calling to mind the current reigning, the currently reigning interpretation and application of the Sixth Commandment by the scribes and Pharisees, which was to focus simply on physical murder, homicide, and its judicial consequences. Yes, that is all true, Jesus in effect is saying, but let me tell you some things the scribes and Pharisees are forgetting. And so he says, but I say to you, but I say to you, now, contrary to popular opinion in our day, Jesus is not superseding the commandment with his own new higher standard or his own new uh, higher commandment. Notice that his words, when he says in verse 22, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother and so forth, Jesus' words here are not in the imperative. In other words, he's not issuing a command. He's not telling us something to do. His words are in the indicative. He's stating a fact. He's describing a situation. He's describing reality, both in terms of the actual situation in Israel in that time and in terms of the full judgment for murder. Jesus is making it clear 
that murder is a real problem among God's people because murder includes a lot more than homicide. And he is making it clear that judgment for murder includes a lot more than punishment in criminal court. God calls the civil government only to punish the physical aspects of murder, homicide, attempted homicide, aggravated assault, and so forth. But God's judgment concerns all forms of murder, not just physical homicide. And his eye penetrates to the thoughts of the heart and to the words of the mouth. Notice Jesus says he refers to the thoughts of the heart. Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause. And he refers to words of the mouth. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means empty head, you empty head or you're you fool. So God's judgment penetrates to the thoughts of the heart and the words of the mouth and murder concerns the thoughts of the heart and the words of the mouth. Now, Jesus here is not saying anything new. He is reacquainting the people with what God said in the law to begin with. And I go here to Leviticus chapter 19, which is where we find the second greatest commandment, according to Jesus, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what it says in context. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, notice here in this seminal passage, the fundamental contrast between loving your neighbor as yourself And standing against the life of your neighbor. That's the fundamental uh, contrast. Loving your neighbor as yourself. On the other hand, standing against the life of your neighbor. We are either doing one or the other at all times. We are either loving our neighbor as ourselves, or we are in some way standing against the life of your neighbor. In other words, it is murder that is in view. And notice the examples of standing against the life of your neighbor. First, heart attitudes. Hating your neighbor in your heart. Bearing a grudge against your neighbor. It involves words. Going about as a talebearer. It involves actions. Taking vengeance. And notice the link between reconciliation and life on the one hand and estrangement and death on the other. Now, that's a connection that the Bible makes all the way back in the Garden of Eden. God said, the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. What happened on the day that they ate of that fruit? They were estranged from God. Estrangement is death. We're not meant to be estranged from God. We're not meant to be estranged from one another. So in the Bible, life is always associated with fellowship. In the, in the epistle, first epistle of John, he says, I'm talking to you about fellowship. That's why I'm writing to you. And he says, and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And I'm writing to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. 
And so life has to do with fellowship. And in a broken world, in a fallen world, that means that life has to do with reconciliation. Taking estrangement and bringing it together. Taking people who are estranged, who are broken apart, who are offended, who are angry, and bringing them together. Reconciling them together. Even as it is about us being reconciled to God. So to love your neighbor is to seek to be in fellowship with your neighbor at all times. And thus it is to seek reconciliation if anything has caused a problem, if anything has caused estrangement. And to not seek reconciliation is to stand against the life of your neighbor. To not seek reconciliation, to not really want fellowship, to not really want uh, fellowship with your neighbor is a form of murder. And it's going to work its way out in these various expressions of murder in the heart, hating your neighbor in your heart, uh, bearing a grudge against your neighbor. It's going to work its way out in words, tail-bearing. It's going to work its way out in actions, seeking vengeance. So, he says to, God says to seek reconciliation, which is what he means by rebuking your neighbor. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor. Now, he does not here mean rebuking your neighbor as a means of vengeance, which is perfectly possible. It's perfectly possible to say, oh, I'm supposed to go to my brother because my brother has offended me. And it says here to love my neighbor that I shall go to him and surely rebuke him. Well, you can. But it says not to take vengeance. And we all know how to go to somebody all wrapped up in religious and spiritual uh, drippings and uh, wrapped up in all of that kind of uh, package and really to be using going to our brother or sister as a form of vengeance. That's not what he's talking about here. He means go to your brother sincerely seeking reconciliation because you desire a relationship with them. You desire fellowship with them. It means seeking reconciliation humbly and prayerfully, and looking in faith for God to work in the process. So you can see here that love your neighbor as yourself, the second great commandment, which sums up our entire duty toward our neighbor. That's what Paul says in the New Testament. He says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't covet it, don't commit perjury, don't steal. He said, if there's any other commandment, it's all summed up in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it's a whole way of referring to the whole second table of the law. And we can really see it's really fair to say that the entire second table of the law really addresses different ways of standing against the life of your neighbor. And we start to see that for God, life is a lot more than just breathing in and out. It's a lot more than having brain waves. It's a lot more than having a heartbeat. Life means Life that, as God created it to be. It means shalom. It means blessing. It means peace. It means harmony. It means happiness. It means all of those things. And if we commit adultery, if we steal, if we lie against somebody, if we do these various things, these are just various ways of draining the life out of somebody else. Of taking away from them what God created life to be. And what is called murder in the law, is simply the most direct forms 
of bleeding the life out of somebody else. Hating, bearing grudges, tail-bearing, taking vengeance. And Jesus is evoking this whole context from Leviticus 19 and the second greatest commandment in our text. And so in doing it in this way, Jesus is correcting the superficial application of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus, to put it another way, is saying that murder is a fruit. And if murder is a fruit, that means it comes from a certain plant. And that means that this plant has roots and stems and leaves before it produces the fruit of murder. Because if you think about a plant when it's growing, what does it have first? It doesn't start out with fruit. It starts out with roots and stems and leaves, and then as it matures, it produces fruit. Now, Jesus identifies the root of this murder plant as being angry without a cause. In verse 22, angry with your brother without cause. Now, what he's saying here is not without a cause at all, but without just cause. Because we always have a reason for being angry, right? Have you ever been angry without a reason? Have you ever been offended without a reason? Have you ever felt wounded without a reason? And have you ever uh, been angry without a reason that you didn't feel like was a good reason at the time? No, by definition, we always feel like it's a good reason. We always feel like it's justified at the time. Otherwise, we wouldn't get angry. We wouldn't be offended. We wouldn't be wounded. What Jesus is referring to here is angry, anger without a just cause. Anger without a just cause. He's talking about unrighteous anger, which is about 99% of human anger. This is why James can say the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. James chapter 1. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Even though anger per se is not wrong. In fact, sometimes it's wrong not to be angry. God himself gets angry. And he is always righteous when he is angry. But James says, because it is so rare for our human anger to truly be righteous, he can just pretty much categorically say the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. So angry without a cause, it can mean that your anger is completely unjustified. It can mean that you're making a false accusation against somebody. It can mean that you're mistaken. You think you know the facts, but you don't know the facts. How many times have we gotten angry or offended at somebody and we just knew that we knew the real situation? And then as we... As it got worked out, and a lot of times it means we're expressing our anger, we're doing something. Some fact comes to light that we didn't know about. There was one little detail we got wrong. Or maybe one little detail we didn't know. And that one little detail completely changes the whole complexion of the situation. And then we feel about this big because of our anger and our offense. How many times does that happen? Or it could mean that our attitude is just completely wrong. Our attitude is just totally off base. Angry without a cause can mean that your anger is partially 
justified, but partially unjustified because you've blown things out of proportion. And that can be because either you've mistaken something in part or maybe you haven't dealt with the situation in the right way. Or it may be mean that we're just being petty. We're just being hypersensitive. We're just being hypercritical. It's something that love should cover. But with us, it is not covering because there's not love there. Or at least not sufficient love. Angry without cause can mean that it was justified in the beginning, but that you didn't deal with it in the right way. And now what may have begun as righteous anger isn't righteous anymore. Because it hasn't been dealt with in the right way. And so a new element has come into it. It's like fruit juice. If it's not dealt with in the right way, if it's allowed just to sit, what's going to happen? It's going to ferment. And once it ferments, it's not the same thing it was before. And that's what happens even if we have anger where there really has been a true offense against us. If it's not dealt with in the right way, it's allowed to ferment. It becomes something that it didn't start out as. It may have started out as a righteous offense or righteous anger, but it's not righteous anymore. So this is the root of the murder plant. It is anger that does not accomplish the righteousness of God, either because its motivations are off, its understanding is off, or the way it is dealt with is off, or all three, which is often the case with us, isn't it? Some of our motivations, at least, are not right. Some of our understanding, at least, is not accurate. And some of the way that we deal with it is not righteous. You combine all of those three and we end up with what Jesus says is anger without a cause. So that is the root of this murder plant. What is the stem of the word of the murder plant? Well, the stem is estrangement. We can see that in verse the latter part of verse 22. It's having uh, brothers who have something against you because you've wronged them in some way. It can be uh, advanced forms of estrangement like uh, litigation where people are suing one another. Take a situation in which our consciences are pricked or else should be pricked. And that's the first example Jesus is talking about. Going to worship and remembering that somebody has something against us because we've wronged them in some way. That's a situation in which our consciences should be pricked. But let's say that they aren't. Our consciences should be pricked, but they aren't. Or else our consciences are pricked and we suppress it. We don't seek reconciliation. We don't do anything about it. So that could be any time, but it's certainly when we come before God and worship. I mean, is there any greater time um, when our consciences should be more sensitive to how we treat other people? Either way, it's talking about the times where we're either suppressing our conscience or else our conscience should be convicting us and it just isn't. You see, when we have unrighteous anger, for whatever reason, however it got to that point, reconciliation is the last thing we want. Right? 
It's the last thing we want. We don't want a relationship with that person who has either really wronged us or we think they have wronged us and we're mistaken or maybe a little bit of both. We don't want a relationship with them. We want them to hurt because they made us hurt or we think they made us hurt rightly or wrongly. We want them to hurt because in our minds they made us hurt. We want our brother or sister to hurt. We think they deserve it. We feel like they forfeited the right to a relationship with us. And so we stand against the life of our neighbor instead of seeking fellowship and reconciliation. That's the stem of the murder plant. Estrangement, a lack of fellowship. And that brings us to the leaves of the murder plant, which are these various outward forms of standing against the life of our neighbor. Damaging words, conflict in all forms, from gossip and slander to insults and liable to outright litigation. And this is how you get a litigious society where everyone sues at the drop of a hat. Everyone feels entitled to wring every cent out of another. No one is really seeking justice or reconciliation. And the civil court system becomes less a place where justice is sought than a place where persecution is perpetrated. Now, the Roman court system was famous for that. It was a place where persecution was carried out more often than not. And we can certainly see the effects of this in our society. Now, James picks up on these same themes in his epistle, and he gives us some extra valuable insights. The first insight he gives us is that murder was a big problem in the early church. James was the leader, the uh, prime leader of the church, uh, the first among equals, you might say, at the, at the church in Jerusalem. So this is largely a, a Jewish Christian congregation, but it was a very large one with thousands there. And therefore, he was the recognized leader of Jewish Christians throughout the Roman Empire. And in his epistle, which is a general epistle, he's not sending it to a particular church. He's writing it to synagogues all over uh, the Roman Empire that have Christians in them. And he says... What is the cause of quarrels and conflicts among you? And he says to them, you lust, you do not have, you murder. This is the word he uses, you murder. This is what he tells them. And he says it all comes back to this murder plant and how it starts in the heart. Now, you just think about the fact. James is writing to a bunch of people he's never met. He doesn't know them. Most of these synagogues he's never been to. He doesn't know what they look like. He doesn't know the people there. He doesn't know their, the particulars of their situation. And he writes to all of them and he says, what's the cause of conflicts and fights among you? It's the fact that you're murdering one another. And it all goes back to what's in your heart. Again, we might think, James, whoa, you don't know me. You don't know our situation. You don't know our church here. That's a little bit broad of a brush to paint with there, James. The response is, no, it's not. No, it's not. 
This is the Holy Spirit speaking through James. And he's saying, this is the cause of conflicts and quarrels and ill will among you. I wonder what James would say to the evangelical church today. I think he'd say the same thing. I think he'd write to all of us and say, this is the cause of conflicts and quarrels and ill will among you. The other thing that James says and the insight he gives us is that this murder plant that we've been talking about, he says, look, this plant takes a certain kind of soil to grow in. And the soil that it grows in is what he calls calls pleasures that wage war within us. Pleasures that wage war within us. And what he's talking about there is not really... Not so much appetites. If we hear pleasures or lusts, we're thinking about appetites. We're thinking about sex, food, drugs, drink, appetites like that. And it can, it can include those kind of things, but that's not primarily what he's talking about. What he's really talking about when he says pleasures is the things that we really care about. The things that we really care about. We may really desire it or it's just something we really, really, really care about. It can be good things, good things that we want or good things that we care about in the wrong way or to a wrong degree. It can be things like our children or our spouse. It can even be spiritual things like the kingdom or evangelism or, or, or other things. Anything other than God, anything other than God can become an idol when it is carried about in the wrong way to the wrong degree Anything other than God, no matter how good it is. So he's not talking about desires per se, but desires that are not in submission to God and his will. That's what he's talking about. Any desire about anything, no matter how good, that is not really open handedly yielded to God and in submission to God. He says you desire and do not have. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. That is, the things that you really, really want regardless of what God wants. And this is how we end up with bitterness toward God, let alone bitterness toward other people, because we feel like there's something we really care about. We feel like we're entitled to it and God didn't give it to us. You know, all bitterness is ultimately directed toward God. All bitterness is ultimately directed toward God because even unbelievers instinctively know that there is a God and He's in control. And if we didn't get what we think we're entitled to, ultimately we know it is God who's sovereign over that situation. And so we may be bitter at another person, but behind that person stands God. And ultimately we are dissatisfied and disappointed and disillusioned with God Himself. And James gives us a third insight. He says that the devil is involved in all of this stuff. This is the context in which James says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice that. Yield your desires, yield the things that you want to God, and resist the devil. 
Why do we need to resist the devil? Because as Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. That's what he says. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. And so Satan peddles in murder. But Satan is not stupid. He doesn't try to go directly for advanced forms of murder. That's not going to be so effective. What Satan does is he peddles mostly in the preconditions for murder. He peddles in the soil that grows the murder plant. Desires, things we care about that are not submitted to God. He peddles um, in anger that isn't just justified. It is not righteous anger. He peddles in estrangement. He peddles in damaging words and conflict in all forms. And this leads to a vicious cycle that takes hold in us. It can take hold in our marriages. It can take hold in our families. It takes hold of churches. It takes hold of whole societies. Apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, this is what makes the world go around. Murder, ill will, wrong types of competition, of resenting other people for having something you don't, unrighteous anger, hating your neighbor in your heart, standing against the life of your neighbor. It's what makes the world go around apart from the gospel. And this is what Jesus came to stop. He came to stop this vicious cycle of murder where we stand against one another's life. And apart from Christ, there is no stop. As cultures turn away from Christ and turn away from the gospel like ours is, what are you going to have? You're going to have on a societal scale more and more of a litigious society. People sue over everything. You know, it wasn't that long ago that nobody would sue a church. I mean, even back, I'd say, into the 1960s, nobody would sue a church. There was no law against suing a church. Nobody would do it. It just wasn't done. It just wasn't right. I can tell you from speaking to our insurer, you realize we have an insurer? Yes, it has come to that. We, we, have, to, we have to think about insurance because churches get sued all the time for all kinds of things. People sue one another. People are intractable. People are intractable in their, in their, in their fights and their feuds with one another. I've been in churches sometimes where there's two families that have been and, and, and going at it. Nobody can even remember when it started. Nobody can even remember. But the ill will is so deep. And then they're always trying to pull people into their camp. And in our society, all the lawsuits, look at, look at the commercials. How do the commercials speak? The commercials speak in terms of what you deserve. We'll get you the money you deserve. Right? That's how they speak. You're entitled to it. You deserve it. It wasn't that long ago when it was considered unethical for lawyers to advertise. To advertise, to peddle 
whatever you're doing to to try to get people to sign up for a class action suit, to tell people, you know, I'm a I'm a, I'm a good lawyer. If you, I'll get you the money you deserve. All that kind of stuff was considered to be beneath the legal profession. It was unethical, but not anymore. I even remember an advertisement when I was in Georgia um, in private practice for a time back in the 80s. It was a picture of a big flying cockroach. And it said, rid your house of a nasty pest. Divorces, $200. We've come a long way, baby. So this, but this is the kind of thing we get into. And it's like, there, there, there is a, a right time. But again, the court system becomes where it's not so much an administration of justice for those who are seeking justice as it becomes a form of persecution. And it gets to where the legal system is the way ours is. Where pretty much in civil litigation, nobody wins. Nobody wins except the lawyers. Right? There's a saying among lawyers. Never despise the one who sues your solvent client. Never despise the one who sues your solvent client. Why? Because you're going to get paid, that's why. So you, in front of your client, you act with outrage. I'm incensed at this lawsuit. But inwardly, you're supposed to be happy because you're going to get paid. And certainly... We want to have a society where we have a care for our neighbors. So God talks about that in the law. He says, if you have a balcony outside, make sure you have a rail around it. You want to care for the life of your neighbor. But, you know, we get to in our society to where, you know, is it really necessary to have to put a sticker on a lawnmower that says this is not a haircutting device or something like that or hedge clipper? Actually, Sears and Roebuck, a number of years ago, got sued because somebody tried to pick up a lawnmower and use it as a hedge clipper, and they got injured. And there was nothing on that lawnmower that warned against that. So anyway, these are the kind of things that come from the murder plant in all of its forms. It never stops with the individual. It works its way out into society. And only Christ can reverse this. Christ came to stop this. He came to deliver us from this. This is what He came to deliver us from being. All of the deepest spirit of murder in the world was heaped upon Jesus on the cross so that He could break the power of murder, the power of death, which is the power of the devil. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There's that reconciliation theme again. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How? By heaping all the deepest spirit of murder upon himself so that he might break that power. You think two of the Gospels tell us that it was because of envy and ill will that the religious leaders handed Jesus over to be crucified. Two of the Gospels tell us that. All the unfairness, all the hatred of heart, all the ill will and the malice and the jealousy, all of the unfairness, all of the lies and slander and spreading falsehood, all of that, even to the point of a judicial framing 
a judicial murder using the court system once again, all of that was heaped upon Jesus, the only pure victim in the history of the world. The only victim who could truly say that he was truly, completely innocent. Jesus heaps this murder upon himself so that he might destroy it. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what shall we do? Well, Jesus tells us. He tells us to pursue reconciliation. Seek fellowship. Seek reconciliation. Don't live with estrangement. And remember that what he's really setting before us here is not, it's not religion versus irreligion. It's not piety versus impiety. It's life versus death. That's what Moses told the people. And that's what Jesus is setting before us. And he tells us to be the kind of people who are sensitive in conscience to how we may have wronged others. In other words, he tells us that to seek reconciliation is a form of high worship. And that's why he says, if you come to worship God and you remember that a brother or sister has something against you, that you leave your gift at the altar, God says, it's okay. I'll wait for you. Go be reconciled. Go seek life. Go seek fellowship. Seek reconciliation. It's high worship. You can't get any higher. And it's good sense. It avoids the kind of litigation he describes later where people are digging in their heels. He says, be the kind of person that has that kind of sensitive conscience that doesn't just blithely come to worship and is never pricked in conscience about things that it has done to other people. And then if it is pricked, it just suppresses it. And don't be the kind of person who you feel like if you're in litigation or some kind of a conflict like that, you dig in your heels, you're unwilling to yield, you just keep rehearsing how righteous your cause is. You're not really seeking justice and reconciliation. He says, agree with your adversary on the way. Do everything you can, everything that you can righteously do to keep it from going there. That's what he is saying. Because you see, if God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, what does that make us? It makes us the people of reconciliation. It makes us the people who show reconciliation. That's what Paul is saying in the same passage. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away. Everything has become new. Now, what does that mean? He tells us. All these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against Him. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors to Christ as though God were Himself making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How can we do that? How can we give that word to people if we aren't the people of reconciliation? 
How can we give that word to people if they come in our midst and they don't see reconciliation? They don't see a people who will go the extra mile to maintain fellowship, to be reconciled. Well, we can't. I think that's why Paul in, in the next verse says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Because the fact of the matter is, if we really are the people of reconciliation and fellowship of life, if we're really that, it's impossible unless into, to some small degree we're willing, like Christ, to bear some sin. And to not be bent out of shape and bitter about it. We're willing to be like Joseph. Who was wronged by his brothers and sold into slavery. And later when he sought reconciliation with them. And brought it about. And they're convicted. He said you intended it for evil. But God intended it for good. Look how big his soul is. Look how big his soul is. He's not a person who's petty. Not a person who's thinking about his rights and his wounds. He's big. And making us big is part of what God is trying to do to us. Paul says in Ephesians that God, His purpose is to fill us up with all of His fullness. That we would be filled up with all the fullness of God. Well, what, happens to, what has to happen for us to be filled up with all the fullness of God? We have to be made bigger. Because we're not big enough to hold God. Our souls have to be made bigger. And so we want to cultivate what Paul calls tender-heartedness. This is another word for the same attitude that Jesus is talking about in our passage. Cultivate tender-heartedness. Paul says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. That's Ephesians chapter 4. I think Jesus is getting to the same thing here. Because notice that in this passage, Jesus says nothing about what to do when you've been offended against. Now, he talks about that later in his ministry. Later in this gospel, he'll talk about what to do if you've really been offended against. But Jesus doesn't say one word here about what to do when you've been offended against. He only talks about what to do when you have wronged somebody, when you have given an offense. Now, why is that? I think it's because Jesus is basically saying to us, we aren't ready. We aren't ready to really deal with somebody who's offended us because we don't really know how to deal with it when we've offended somebody else. This is where you start, says Jesus. And you know, it's interesting that if we're the kind of person that is hypersensitive to somebody else offending us, we're also going to be very insensitive to how we may have wronged somebody else. So, being hypersensitive when it comes to ourselves doesn't make us hypersensitive when it comes to somebody else. It's the opposite. And I think Jesus is saying we need to be the kind of person who when they're coming to worship, their main focus is not going to be on rehearsing who may have offended them. Their conscience is tender toward how they may have wronged others. Now, you tell me, where is the most likely place that we're going to be offended? 
in our homes and in our church. Because that's where we're closest to people, right? It's not that the people are worse in our homes or the people are worse in our church. It's just that these are the places we're closest to people. So where are our thoughts most likely to go Sunday morning when we know we're going to come and we're going to be with one another in God's church? Are our thoughts most likely to be on maybe how we've wronged somebody else or let them down? Or are they most likely going to be on these people and my beefs with them because of how they've treated me? Well, you know the answer to that one because you know how we are. But Jesus is talking about cultivating the kind of heart that's like the person in his illustration. Because this, we have to cultivate that heart to even get our gyroscope to be true. To get our compasses to point to true north. When we are preoccupied with self, yourself when you go to God in prayer. And he's not talking about scrupulosity here. He's not talking about making up stuff. But that we go to God in a genuine way where we're primarily focused on God and other people. And therefore, our primary focus is not on what have others done to us, or, but maybe on how have we wronged other people. I think Jesus is saying this is the kind of heart we need to even begin to get out of the whole mode of standing against the life of one another and to begin to love our neighbor as ourself. And so this week I would urge you to take these things to heart and to do this and to evaluate yourself. Are you a person who is seeking reconciliation? Are you cultivating tender heartedness? And when you have an offense, when you feel an estrangement from somebody, when you feel anger towards somebody, then run down the checklist of of, of what Jesus calls anger without cause. Run down the checklist. Do you really know the facts? Are you really accurate? Do you know the whole truth? Are you bearing a grudge against your neighbor? Are you dealing with it in the right way? Are your motives wrong? Run down through that checklist and ask yourself, am I really seeking fellowship with this person or do I really feel like they've forfeited the relationship with me and I don't want a relationship with them?